Well, welcome to Crossroads Church. It is good to have you here today. I want to welcome all of you joining us online. If you're on Facebook or YouTube, you can give us a thumbs up. If you're watching on Crossroads Live, you can hit a heart. Let us know that you're there. I also want to welcome uh, Fort Lupton, and of course, all of you here at Thornton today. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Matt Manning, and I am the senior pastor uh, here at Crossroads Church. And as you saw in the video, we are in the middle of a series that we are calling Man to Man, where we are looking specifically over the next five weeks of, of really painting a clear vision for manhood and what manhood and masculinity is all about. Because the nitty-gritty is the reality is that we live in a society where people have surrendered meaning to convenience and purpose to existence. And this is no greater, no greater a dilemma than that in the life of guys. That as we look at our society and this culture, the struggle of manhood today has incited chaos in every area of our culture. And if you're a guy or you are a person, a parent raising boys, then we look out at the world and the world's definition or the world's messaging about manhood is confusing at best, isn't it? I mean, we look at the world's definition and their message concerning, uh, uh, concerning manhood, and what we see is the, from really the machismo of the sports culture that just wages his finger and swagger to us, to the glorification of toxic masculinity and, that's sold to us in music and in television and in the, uh, in, in the arts. We see movie screens filled with stories of guys who just refuse to grow up role models who are in their, in their 30s, who are suspended in a permanent state of adolescence. And the failure, or even at times, just the plain refusal of males to become men, the inability for, for males to move beyond their plumbing, the inability to, for men to, to complete themselves or to have for themselves a vision of manhood has created havoc in every part of our culture that we look around at what it means to be a man, and certainly, certainly, there are exceptions that every single one of us can point to. But the real reality is, is that when it comes to manhood, when we look at the scope of the decline of our culture, much of it can be tied to the absence of living out a clear vision of what it means to be a man. And maybe to your surprise, or maybe not, this is not a new thing. In fact, this is as old as time itself. In fact, if we were to open up the Old Testament and look at some scriptures, we would find scriptures like this in Ezekiel chapter, 20, verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 30. It says this, And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I would not destroy it. I sought for a man, but, huge but, God says, I found none. God says, look, there were many males, but I could not find myself a man. We can turn to Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1. And in Jeremiah, the prophet writes these words. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice, who seeks truth, that I may pardon her. And if you read through Jeremiah chapter 5, you come to the sad reality that as the nation of Israel is looking for a man, they can find none. Which means, which means, hear me on this, from God's perspective, 
It is totally possible for you to be a male and not to be a man. And this is the question of our time. Are we, are we giving our males a vision for who they can be, or are we simply limiting them to their biology? Are we giving males a vision of who they can be and then expecting them to live that out, or are we simply limiting them to their biology? That's what this series is all about, creating a vision for manhood. And if you were here last week, you know how personal this is for me, that not only am I a guy who wants to live out a vision of manhood, but I also am the father of two boys. And about 10 years ago or so, I I stumbled upon a book called Raising a Modern Day Knight, and as I read that book, I was challenged to come up with a vision for manhood. That I, could, that I could challenge myself to live toward, but also that I could teach my boys in. And so inspired by Robert Lewis, the author of that book, I came to really define manhood, determined that a real man would be defined by five values. That a real man would, would first and foremost reject passivity. That a real man would, would accept responsibility. That they would lead courageously, that they would live wisely, and that they would live for the greater reward. That these values would make up a definition for what a real man can be. And so like with most things that have any significance in our life, if we turn and open up the pages of Scripture, we we find clarity and understanding. And so when we open the pages of Scripture looking for a definition of masculinity, looking for a definition of manhood, what we're presented with is these like two archetypes of masculinity. Two archetypes of of what it means to be a man. One we find in Adam, all the way back in the Old Testament, the beginning pages there. And the second we find in the beginning pages of the New Testament in Jesus. And what we have in these two archetypes is two versions of masculinity with two very different lifestyles and two very different destinies. And if we take a moment just to slow down and compare these two versions of masculinity, these two archetypes, what we begin to discover and clarify in us is a vision for manhood, that we get a sense of what a real man is all about. And so last week, as we started the series, we looked at that men, that real men reject passivity. And if you missed that, I would encourage you to go check that up, catch up on the archives, that you can check that out on our websites or on our app, but that you would go back and you would look at that. And today, we jump into value number two, which is a real man accepts responsibility. And so as we dive into this today, if you have a Bible, whether that's a paper Bible or one on a phone or a tablet, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And as you turn there, I don't know if you've ever noticed or not, but there is a seemingly huge glaring error in the Bible that used to bother me quite a bit. It used to bother me more than quite a bit, but a lot. And it all has to do around the story of how sin entered into this world. Now, in the New Testament, as we open up the pages of the New Testament, we're introduced to a person that we call the Apostle Paul. And this Apostle Paul is a great missionary. In fact, he went on all over the known world. And as he traveled all over the known world, he started churches everywhere that he went. But not only was he this missionary that started churches, he was this very prolific writer and thinker. And so most of our New Testament is made up of the letters from the Apostle Paul. And so one of those letters that he wrote was to the church in Rome, and we call it, very creatively, the book of Romans. 
And in Romans chapter 5, Paul is writing to this church, and he's explaining to them the fall. Now, if you're not familiar with what the fall is, the fall is Genesis chapter 3, and really the story of how sin, evil, entered into the world. And so Paul's giving commentary, he's helping explain what it looks like, uh, how sin functions, and ultimately the effects that it has on our world and why it matters to the church in Rome during this day. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he writes these words to the church. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Did you see the error there? Let me read it again to you. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Did you see it that time? Maybe let me help you. In light of Romans chapter 5, in this verse we have up here, I want you to answer a few questions from Genesis chapter 3. Now, whether you've been in church your whole life or not, you're probably going to know the answers to this, these questions. They're pretty, it's a pretty popular story. It's pretty easy questions. And so here's the first question I have for you. That in the beginning, as Adam and Eve are kind of hanging out in the garden, you know, doing their thing, the serpent, the personification of evil, comes wandering into the garden. And when the serpent comes into the garden, who does the serpent speak to first, Adam or Eve? Eve, good, Eve. Now, as the serpent's speaking to Eve, someone goes over to the tree and they grab the forbidden tree, uh, fruit, the forbidden fruit from the tree. Who was that, Adam or Eve? Eve. And as Eve grabs the forbidden fruit from the tree, who is it that eats the forbidden fruit first, Adam or Eve? Eve. Who sinned first, Adam or Eve? Eve. We look at the story and we go to Paul, just as sin came into the world through one man. Paul, I think you got your story wrong. Everybody knows that Eve ate the apple. Adam was sitting there watching until she offered it to him. Just as sin came into the world through one woman. That's what I think you meant, Paul. And Paul goes, no, 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 not so fast. Let me turn the tables and and ask you some questions. On that tragic day when sin marched into the world with all of its friends of despair, pain, suffering, and death, when sin marched into this world, who did God call for? We might not be so quick with the answer on that one. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6, gives us the story that we're looking at, and here's what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the uh, the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam, where are you at? 
As sin and all of its friends come marching into the creation, as God watches this happening, he goes to Adam as if to say, Adam, it was you that I gave the command not to eat from this tree. It was you. Eve did not even exist yet when I gave you that command. And speaking of Eve, this beautiful woman, I gave her to you to care, to protect, to cherish, to love in your life. And I put you in this this amazing garden for you to work and to bring flourishing into this world, into my creation. Adam, it was your responsibility to live up to my will. It was your responsibility to care for this woman. It was your responsibility to work this garden. Where are you? Men, we have been living under this question our entire lives. Men, where are you at? See, there is not a huge glaring error in the Bible. For God, from God's perspective, Paul says it was the man who brought sin into the world because the essence of masculinity, according to God, is the taking of responsibility. And Adam did not. Man, where are you? It's a pretty tragic point in the story of not just creation, but humanity. And it's why when we open the New Testament that we find such hope. Because as we open the pages of the New Testament, we see Jesus, we see, the, we see the other version of masculinity that's given to us in the scripture, and we see true masculinity in Jesus as he specifically takes on the responsibility where Adam failed to do so. That this is the gospel, this is the good news, this is amazing. That God came into this world, that God came into this world as man, that God came into this world as Jesus. And Jesus goes about living in this world and he lives his life perfectly. Zero sin, no sin. To which in church world, we kind of pass through this kind of quickly, don't we? Through Jesus' life and and his no sin of his life. But we need to pause. We need to at least stop and contemplate what this looks like and what's going on here and why it's so significant to Jesus in this version of masculinity. See, that Jesus steps in and he steps up. And where Adam was disobedient, where Adam failed in his obedience, Jesus is perfect. Where Adam failed to accept the responsibility to live according to the will of the Father, Jesus succeeds, and in doing so, he begins to unravel a bit the failure of Adam. But not only there. The next thing that we know about Jesus is not only that did he, did he live a perfect life on this earth, but that he also went to the cross and he, and he died. He died on the cross showing the love that he has for his bride. Now, all throughout the scriptures, we're painted this picture for us time and time again that the bride of Jesus is the church, maybe no more beautifully than Ephesians chapter five. That Paul is writing to husbands and and he's writing to, to husbands their role in marriage with their wives. And here's what he writes. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is a command to, to every husband. Love your wife as Christ loved his bride. How did he do that? He gave himself up for her. That Jesus loved his bride by giving himself up for her. In her ugliest moments, in her most tragic moments, Jesus does what Adam refused to do. In the church's most tragic moment, as sin filled her life, Jesus takes on what is not his sin and becomes responsible for it. Going to the cross and dying. Why? Because we're told in the scriptures that the wages of sin is death. That everyone who sins should be dead. And yet the very reason that we're not is because of Jesus' love for his bride. That Jesus steps up and steps in. And over and over again, we see it when it comes to his bride. That he loves her. That he cares for her. And in doing so, he begins to unravel a little bit further the failure of Adam. But then finally we see as Jesus is on the cross and he's taking his last breath on the cross, he utters three words, three huge words that resonate through all of history. That as Jesus is on the cross, breathing his last breath, he looks up to the heaven and he says, it is finished. To which we step back and we go, well, Jesus, what's finished? The answer, the work that the Father gave him to do. Where Adam failed in his work to cultivate the garden in order to bring flourishing into this world, Jesus goes to the cross dying so that each and every one of us can have life and can experience flourishing in this world. And in doing so, Jesus completely unravels the failure of Adam. Men, where are you? Simply put, your responsibilities, my responsibility, is the same that was given to Adam. That I'm to live according to the will of the Father that have been given a bride to care for, to cherish, to love, that have been given a work in creation to accomplish and to finish. And God looks at each and every single one of us and goes, men, where are you at? I mean, let me paint this picture a little bit more, more simply for you, a little more clearly for you. Number one, your first responsibility is to yourself. Your first responsibility is to yourself, that you are to live according to the will of the Father. Listen, men, if you're here today and you're hoping to fix your life, if you're looking to repair your marriage, fix your relationship with your kids, undo the wrongs that you've done in work and you don't know Jesus, those things are not your first priorities. They are all secondary that your first priority is to yourself. Your first priority is to get in right relationship with God. It's to enter in and to have right relationship with Jesus. And the only way that that even has any chance of happening is when you get down on your knees and you begin to repent of your sin, trusting in Jesus' life, death, 
burial, and resurrection. That you go out and you, you get a Bible and you actually start to read it so that you can understand what God's will is for your life. And in doing so, you begin to pray and to grow spiritually. And over time, God begins to mold you and shape you in ways that he created you and is calling you to be as a man. That your first responsibility is to yourself to live according to the will of the Father. Your second responsibility then is to your bride and to your family. That Ephesians chapter 5, the verse that we read, it paints this so clearly, where Paul looks at every single one of us as men and says, men, your responsibility is to create in your home a place where your family and specifically your wife, your bride, can not just survive in her relationship toward me, but can thrive in her relationship with me. It means that, that we're to create a place by, by honoring her and creating a, an environment that protects and fosters her ability to, to make known her inner beauty that we lead her in such a way that she starts to demonstrate things like love and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, where those things begin to flourish in her life because her inner beauty is in an environment where it can thrive. Now, this is way easier said than done, isn't it, men? That most men, when it comes to their marriages, fall woefully short in this area, me included. And the truth of the matter is, is the reason that we fail is not because we don't want to do it, is it? It's not even because we don't care. We do care. The reason that we fail so often is because we simply don't know how. We don't want to mess up. We don't want to make things worse than they are, and so we just don't. We let passivity drive us. And yet, as we saw last week, real men, they reject passivity. That real men, they accept the responsibility. They accept the responsibility to care, to cherish, to love the bride that they've been given by God. So what does that look like for us? Well, let me tell you how that you can do this with one simple question that I'm going to give you in a moment. But when it comes to your wife, you need to learn to dwell in the knowledge of your wife. And if you ask this one question, it will absolutely change your marriage. When you get home today, before you turn on the Bronco game, just simply look at your wife and ask her this question. What does it look like for me to foster your inner beauty? What does it look like for me to lead you in peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? What does it look like for me to foster that inner beauty that's inside of you? You asking this one question and then living it out will absolutely change your marriage. If you're a man here and you're single, you don't get a pass on this that when it comes to the bride that you're to love, that bride is the same bride that Jesus has. It's the church. And the question that you have to wrestle with today, if you're a single man, whether you're in middle school or in your 80s, is how do I serve and protect and care for 
and cherish and love the bride that God has given to me. Your third responsibility as a man is as a worker, that every man is given a job to do, a part of creation to, to cultivate. Our work, whatever it is, whatever our work is, secular, secular or sacred, woodworking, mining, baking, brewing, butchering, managing, ruling, is our worship to God. If you go all the way back to the beginning pages of Scripture, before even the origins of sin in Genesis chapter 3, what we find is that there is no negativity towards work, whether it be secular or sacred. That we see that, that God rested from his work. And that whole comment that God rested from his work is intended to show us that, that work is good. That it is a good, God-like thing. That, that God did not shy away from work, but that God worked for six days and then he rested for one. And as we read those beginning pages, we find that the jewel of, of God's work, the jewel of all of creation, is humanity. It's men and women. A creature created in God's own image, designed to carry out the work of ruling and shaping and, and distinguishing and cultivating the creation. And so at the very heart of the meaning of work is to be creative. And so, if you're God, then your job, your work, is to create something out of nothing. But if you're not God, but you're God-like, that is, you're human, then your work is to take what God has made and shape it and use it to make God look great. Your work is worship to God and a service to the rest of humanity to bring about flourishing and the common good in this world. Men, it's these three areas that we are called to accept our responsibility, that we accept our responsibility to ourselves by obeying and seeking the will of our Father. It's our responsibility to care and to cherish and to love and to protect the bride that we've been given. And it is our responsibility to do a work that was created for us before even the beginnings of the foundations of this world. Those are our responsibilities. And if by chance we take these three responsibilities and somehow invert them, get them out of whack in the order in which they're supposed to happen, then we're not actually being responsible at all. Listen, men, work is not the most important thing about you. Work is not even your most important responsibility. That your responsibility on this earth is to make sure that these three priorities are happening in the order, the right order that they should be happening. It's your responsibility to cultivate these three priorities in the life of your wife. It's these three priorities that you should be cultivating in the life of your children. That your work is not the most important thing about you. You do not get your identity from work. You get your identity from God. That you are loved by God. 
that you are made by God, that you have been given dignity and value and worth by God, that you have been redeemed by God, that you are a son of God. That's your identity, not what you do. Men, where are you at? See, the essence, the essence of masculinity is in taking and accepting responsibility. It doesn't matter how much whiskey you can drink or how many wings that you can throw back or if you can throw a football further than Uncle Rico. Those things don't matter. Those things don't make you a man. That ultimately, masculinity is about accepting responsibility. And you may not be big, and you may not be tough, you may not be able to win a thumb fight, let alone a cage fight. But listen to me, if you take responsibility, you are a real man. You are a masculine man. And all of that starts with Jesus. That you have no chance at doing this on your own, that every single one of us needs Jesus. And so if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So I'm going to ask every single one of you if you would bow as we pray to wrap this up. Father, Lord, we come to you. Lord, seeing the chaos and the havoc that Adam brought into this world when he shrunk back and did not accept the responsibilities that you had given to him. And Lord, as as we look at the responsibilities that we have as men, Lord, it is hard not to feel like a failure. Lord, we look in our lives at the times that we haven't followed you well. When we've disobeyed your will, sometimes by accident, but Lord, if we were honest most of the time, intentionally. God, we look at our lives and and we realize those moments where we haven't created in our homes a place where our wives, our kids can thrive. We look out, Lord, and, and we see, Lord, that oftentimes in our work, we take that good work and we elevate it to ultimate, finding our identity there, finding our love there, finding who we are there. And Lord, in inverting all of that, Lord, our lives get so out of whack. And so if anything today, Lord, I pray that you would move in the men here. Lord, that you would, that you would take their priorities and that you would put them in the right places, that you would help us put them in the right places. Lord, that our first love would be our first love, that it would be you. And so, Father, I pray for those who have maybe followed you but have fallen away. Lord, who have not always made you first priority, I pray, Lord, that these would be quiet moments in their heart where they, would, where they would reconcile that with you, knowing that you're not standing there ready to condemn, but you're standing there ready to welcome them with grace and mercy. 
And Father, I pray for those who have maybe never taken the step of faith, who for years, if not decades, have tried to do it on their own, Lord, and they've seen and experienced the havoc and the chaos that's caused in their life, and maybe for the first time ever, Lord, maybe for the first time ever, they've seen the responsibility that you've called them to. And they realize that they're not in right relationship with you. They never have. And Father, I pray today that you would whisper to their souls, that they would cry out to you as Savior, that they would get on their knees, repenting of their sins, believing in you, trusting in your life, your death, your burial, and your resurrection. And so, Lord, we understand your grace and mercy in such a way, Lord, that, that even when we fail, we know that you don't strip us of who we are, that we are sons and daughters of you. Remind us of that every single day, every single day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Every week as a church, we come together around communion, remembering what Jesus did on the cross. It's our weekly reminder that it is indeed finished. Mission accomplished. Jesus came and did what we needed him to do, which was his body to be broken and his blood to be spilt out for the wages of sin. His death for mine. And in his death and ultimately his resurrection, as his body was broken and his blood was spilled, we find life. And not just any life, but we find it abundantly. And so today we remember the sacrifice, the work that Jesus made on the cross, not just remembering but celebrating that now we have life. And so we do it together. Remember the cup and the blood that was poured out specifically for the forgiveness of our sins. It's why Jesus can look at us and say, there is no condemnation with me, but I came so that you might have life, so that you would be saved. And so we drink the cup of our salvation today. Having remembered communion, we now celebrate. And what better way to do that than to lift our voices in praise to our good and great God. And so I'm gonna ask you all just to stand if you're in house here. If at any point you need prayer over the next 20 minutes or so, we have people ready to pray for you under the banner that says prayer online. You can just click the button that says prayer. Let's sing and celebrate together.